Dear Heavenly Father, you tell us in your word that you hold your word even above your name. That your word, Father, is the way that you have appointed to us and for us to know you and to know your will. It is the means by which you bring faith. It is the embodiment of your Son, Father. It is the way by which you created the world. And Father, we could not, if we tried, put too much emphasis on your word. Not in our life, Father, not in our daily walk, not in our witness, not in any of the ways we might carry you forward in this world, Father. The word is the means by which we know you. It is the means by which you make us like you. And it is the means by which, Father, you will transform the world. We praise you that we have been gathered in your name to study it tonight. And Father, may we keep that sense of awe and reverence for it even as we study it, that though it comes to us, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we may know it, let us never take it for granted. I pray, Father, tonight the words would mean so much to us, Father, that we might be willing to do anything required to obey. That regardless of what obstacles may exist in our hearts or in our lives, they would pale in comparison, Father, to our desire to heed your word. Let us... Uh, let us take this as the serious opportunity it is to, to know your will and to live it. Father, I praise you as well and thanks for this building, for the room and the provision of those who've worked to make it comfortable and to make it accessible to us, for the faithfulness, Father, of those who gather here regularly and tithe so that the building might even exist at all. Thank you, Father, for all that you do for us in that way. And uh, may the teaching tonight, Father, be according to your will and worthy of, of the opportunity to serve you. And may you direct our steps in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, well, if you have a Bible, as I hope you do, let's open up chapter 18 of Luke. Getting closer, steadily closer to the, the end of this book. As you know, chapter 24 is the last chapter. So we're coming up on the last sequence of events in Luke's Gospel. As we go back, I want to take just a brief moment to remember a little bit about what was happening as we left off at the end of chapter 17 last week. In that chapter, as you may remember, Jesus was addressing his disciples on the kingdom and specifically on his future return. And he mentioned to the disciples in that chapter that in the day of his return, judgment will come for those who are not looking for his return. And to those who are oblivious, to those who uh, do not recognize the coming judgment, he said that, Upon Christ's return, the end will come suddenly and judgment will come as the result of their uh, lack of faith. So there was this impending doom waiting for those who in the last days are completely oblivious to the fact that Christ's return will happen. Those unbelievers who are on the earth in that moment, we, we gained some real specific knowledge last week, if you remember, from comparisons in Matthew's Gospel where we learned that those who are on the earth at the moment, when... Christ returns. They will be gathered up by his angels, we're told. They will be brought together for the specific purpose of coming to Christ face to face upon Christ's return on the earth, where they will lose their earthly life as described in Revelation 19. He's giving the disciples a preview of that moment in the verses we saw last week out of chapter 17. When the disciples, in fact, ask him specifically, where are these people going that you say are going to disappear at the day of your return? Two at the mill, one is gone. Two in the bed, one is gone. Where are these people going? Jesus gives this somewhat cryptic answer, this somewhat uh, 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 ominous answer when he says that where the vultures are gathered, that's where the body will be. 
Meaning literally that these people will experience death and decay. These ones that Jesus said, where are they? He's answering by saying they're the ones who are going to be gathered together for judgment and death. More importantly, we learned from chapter 17 last week how these end days would be characterized by a rise in depravity, number one, and number two, a rise in demonic activity. Comparisons that he makes from looking at the days of Noah and Lot. These days when Christ returns would be just like the days immediately prior to the flood and immediately prior to the judgment in the city of Sodom. Days when you saw depravity at its height among men and demonic activity at a height within the population. So this week, knowing what we just read now after chapter 17, this week in the opening verses of chapter 18, we see Jesus building on those points right from the start. And that's important. Remember the writer of Luke, uh, Luke himself, the writer of this gospel, did not pen the gospel with chapters and verse. We know that, I'm sure. Most of you know that. He wrote it as a continuous work. Men, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, came along later, and when they brought this work into the canon, they appended chapter and verse to it. But I do believe the Holy Spirit was active in that moment as much as he was in the time it was written, so that these chapter and verse breaks are where God would have them be for our own sake. But sometimes they get in the way of our own understanding, I think. It's helpful if you have a version of the Bible that takes out chapter and verse headings uh, to read it that way on occasion because it can give you additional insight to see it written in its original way. And in its original form, there's no break between the last verse of chapter 17 and the first verse of chapter 18. It's just a continuous thought. And seeing it that way helps you appreciate the transition here. Look at verse 1 of chapter 18. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. And you may find this statement a bit out of the blue at first, until you begin to connect it to what he was just telling them at the end of chapter 17. We've, we're going to look here at a parable that's followed, that follows this opening statement that's recorded only here in Luke. This, again, has been a very common pattern. Ever since we moved out of chapter 13, we've been looking at parable after parable that was only recorded in Luke. One of the hallmarks of Luke's gospel is the number of unique parables found in his gospel. And this parable that's recorded only in Luke is placed directly after the discourse that Jesus had given in chapter 17. Though I don't think that necessarily means it happened in the same moment. It's just as likely that Luke felt that this parable was appropriate to place here because it had a bearing on the previous conversation. I'm not saying they didn't happen in close proximity. I'm just saying it doesn't have to follow that they, they were spoken in the same moment. I do think, on the other hand, it was important for Luke to place them near each other so that you could appreciate how one is connected to the other because they are connected. This opening parable in 18, and in fact, not just the one that we're about to study here, but the one that will follow it in verse 9, which we will also look at tonight, these are somewhat unique, uh, and, and they have some unique characteristics among all the other parables you find in Luke's Gospel. For example, they both begin with a statement about why Jesus told these particular parables. That's very unique. Normally, we don't get that kind of editorial comment from Luke. So we're given an editorial comment from Luke before both these parables so that we might understand why they're told. In this case, we're told Jesus wants the disciples to pray and not to lose heart. Seems like a very simple and understandable goal, right? This phrase, on the other hand, when you look at it more closely, the phrase translated lose heart in the Greek, ekakeo, ekakeo in the Greek, it can also be translated, it means more literally, to grow weary or to grow faint. Meaning, 
I think clearly Jesus wanted to give the disciples reason not to give up or to be discouraged in their appointed work, the work that they were going to take on after his death, and that they should continue to pray in the midst of their afflictions. Now, this is a natural issue for him to raise at this point. It's expected, I would think, for him to raise it at this point, because in light of what he had just taught in chapter 17, he had told the disciples what I would characterize as a grim report of what to expect in the day leading up to his return. What would he have them, what would he have them expect? Well, number one, he, had, he told them, you need to expect a depraved world where the enemy seems to be taking control. That's your expectation for the world immediately before my promised return. And even though, and here's another important point, even though the disciples had no idea how long it would be before Christ would return, it didn't matter because every generation since Christ, every generation of believers since Christ, has seen persecution of the church happen somewhere in the world. Our own age, no different. Every generation of believers since the day of Christ has seen persecution somewhere in the world. So therefore, every believer, every generation of believers, has reason to read these very same verses and take from them the very same encouragement that the disciples themselves needed in their day. No matter how close any given generation of believers may be to Christ's return, it's still possible to identify with the thinking that underlies these verses. That there would be things going on in the world that seem counter to God's purpose in establishing the kingdom, and that those things would be discouragement to those of us who are working to bring the kingdom to reality. To build believers, in other words, in the days before Christ's return. That discouragement is a natural consequence of the persecution that comes. And when it comes, Christ says, don't lose heart, don't grow weary of keeping the faith, and of doing the Master's will. What's interesting about how he provides that encouragement, given what we learned in chapter 17, is he's going to emphasize before this parable is over the fact that things are going to get worse. Get used to it. To put it in my words, the fact that your work in ministry toward the glory of my name and in obedience to my commission does not result in the worldwide transformation of the human population into Christians, the fact that that does not result is not a sufficient excuse on your part or on my part to give up. You cannot use the measurement of how many people agree with the Christian faith as a measurement or as a condition for whether or not to persevere. This isn't working. I mean, look. I keep knocking on doors and they're all just kicking me off the doorstep. This isn't working. I can't keep this up. No, Christ says that fact and that fact alone is never enough to say stop. In fact, he'll tell you up front, guess what? It's going to happen. You've been warned. Now go out. In the case of the disciples themselves, think about these 12 men who are hearing this message. Those 12 men constitute the beginnings of the church. And in the lives of those men, it would have been very natural for them to grow weary and to get disappointed, especially in light of what they faced in their lifetime. Virtually all of those men experienced martyrdom in their lives. Virtually all of them experienced trials along the way, even on their way to the death, the, the deaths that they experienced, right? So if there were ever a generation of believers who could have rightly said, this is not worth it, it would have been the disciples themselves, the apostles. Considering how they must have all been assuming, and this is an important consideration too, those 12 men, Jewish men, who understood the Messiah's coming to mean the entry of a kingdom, and who were surprised to find out it didn't happen in their day, that in fact Jesus had to die, all of those things being surprising, shocking revelations to these men. 
considering how they must have all been assuming that the Messiah's coming to the earth would have brought in peace and justice. Now imagine what it must have meant to them to realize after his death, no, that's not what's going to happen. And at every turn, they find more and more persecution and more and more resistance to the message. How do you persevere under those circumstances? How do you take what you assume to be a slam dunk, the kingdom is here, the Christ is here, things will be good from this point forward, and still motivate yourself to go forward knowing that it's not just wrong, the opposite of that is true. That yes, the kingdom will build in the hearts of men and women and the church will grow in, in, in the form Christ appoints. But in their lifetime, discouragement would have been an easy thing for them to experience. The opening verse here uses language that I think makes clear Jesus is talking about a larger periscope of time. And this is something else to consider as we begin to look at the parable here in a moment. When he says, at all times, in verse 1, when he says uh, he was telling a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray, that word in the Greek is one word to represent at all times, pantote in the Greek. It literally means evermore. And it's a specific reference, by its context, it's clear, this is a specific reference to the period between his departure and his return to judge the world. He's not just saying to the disciples, in all your days, do not be discouraged, do not lose heart. He's saying, during this time, in this period of time, between when I will leave and when I will return, you ought to not lose heart and you ought to pray. It's not a message strictly limited to their life or their lifetime, it's to this age, represented by the time between his departure at the ascension until his return at his second coming. It's during that period of time Jesus is commanding his disciples not to lose heart, not to forget to pray. And it comes at the end of chapter 17, which gives us the context to make that interpretation. The time, remember he was talking about at the end of chapter 17, the time he kept referencing over and over and over again. How did he describe that time? The day of the Son of Man. The day of the Son of Man. That is a time in view, a period of time, a moment in time that's been in view ever since the middle of chapter 17. This is the time when all disciples wait for. This is the moment of truth. This is the period of time we are now in, waiting for that day. And he's saying, that day will bring all that you've expected out of my arrival. And at all times, up to that day, do not lose heart, do not forget to pray. It's a command for the church during that period of time. So every disciple should hear the words of Christ that follow now in this parable. Don't lose heart, keep praying, even though your circumstances are bleak or the enemy seems to be in power. And here's the parable he tells about a widow and an unrighteous judge. In verse 2 he says, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God, did not respect man, there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continuing coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith. Will he find faith on the earth? This parable, and as I said, the one that follows, are unique in more ways than just the fact that Luke gives you the reason for why they're told. They're also unique in that they both are structured as contrasts rather than 
Comparisons. You remember your high school English teacher? Contrast, compare and contrast these two forms of writing. Does that bring, that bring back bad memories for anybody in here? Those compare and contrast assignments? You never really could tell, well, what's the difference? It was almost like, you know, small dog and puppy. It was just two words that basically meant the same thing. But then your English teacher corrected you if you said that to her. You said, aren't those the same? She said, no, and see me after class, right? <laughs> no, she said, one is a process of looking for similarities, and the other is a process of looking for differences. Compare is when you find similarities. Contrast is when you look for differences. Compare and contrast. Most of Jesus' parables are designed to draw comparisons. Uh, a kingdom is like a mustard seed, or the kingdom is like leaven, or slaves and their masters. And we draw comparisons as to Christians of the world being the slaves and the Christ himself being the master. We draw comparisons. But in this parable, this is one of the few you'll find in Scripture, uh, but it's also true for the one we're going to read after it, where the main point is being made by a contrast rather than by a comparison. You can also find some comparisons within this parable, to be sure, but the main point is one of contrast, not of comparison. So let's sort this out. In the parable, we have a judge and we have a widow. These characters are interesting right from the start because they form a contrast of their own. Because a judge in the culture of the Jew in the day this would have been spoken by Christ, a judge was arguably the most powerful person in Jewish society on a daily basis. Now, you had the high priest, I know, you had the Sanhedrin, you had men of spiritual significance who had very important roles as well, but in sort of an everyday role, in sort of a, an every man, everyday man kind of role, a judge would have been a very powerful position because remember, the Romans had conquered the Jews and that meant that all the powerful governmental positions were held by Romans. I think by the context of this, you would argue this is not a Roman judge. This is a Jewish judge. Jesus typically in his parables uses a Jewish context. That would be the reasonable kind of context to bring to this one as well. So the only positions of power remaining available to a Jewish society were judges under the Jewish law. Judges of the Torah. Not judges as you and I would think of in a civil sense, but more uh, a pharisaical kind of role within the culture. A man who had the authority to bring judgment to the behaviors of people according to the Torah, according to the Jewish law. That kind of a man would have been about as powerful a Jew as you could find in Jesus' day. Though all that power was subjugated to the power of Rome, Rome was always the ultimate power. But then you have the widow. And on the other end of the social scale, the widow was the least powerful member of Jewish society. She was the one who had no inheritance, she had no income, she had no protector, she had no hope in that culture. This is why you see Scripture in the New Testament giving so much attention to the fate of widows above all others. You see it in Acts chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 5, and James chapter 1 to be specific. Those are places that have tremendous things to say about the need to protect the interests of widows within the church and to treat them properly. So, as we begin the parable, we're immediately struck by how Jesus chose these characters, by the contrast between the most powerful person in the society and the least powerful person in society interacting. So we're told this judge is unrighteous. Specifically, we're told he does not fear God and he does not respect men. And this is pretty dramatic when you consider that his role is to judge according to God's law. You know, today you wouldn't be very surprised if someone told you there was a judge who didn't fear God an earthly judge, a, a judge of our law today. And you wouldn't even be very surprised if I told you they don't respect men. There's many judges who 
live a life of, of arrogance, essentially, by how they feel they are above anybody else's reproach or anybody else's purview. But in Jesus' day, it would have been a bit scandalous to hear of such a man because their role was to adjudicate a law given by God to ensure righteousness, not to, perf- not to create it in men. We know the law was not given for that purpose, but it embodied righteousness. And it was an attempt, if you kept it, to, re- to reflect your faith in obedience to God's commandments. So here's a man who's been given the right and the authority to adjudicate a law which he himself, by his own nature, repudiates as someone who does not fear God. So it's a quite a contrast there as well, of a man who would be, be in a role where he doesn't buy into it. All right? Then there's this widow, who, who we're told continues to approach this judge asking for protection from her opponent. And there's some very interesting language here that you have to get accurate if you really want to sense what Jesus is saying. It's important to note here that what she's asking the judge to do is exactly what he's supposed to do. All right? A judge is supposed to provide justice to those who deserve it. That's his job. Je- Jesus uses the word for protection here in the Greek, ektikeo in the Greek. And what that word literally means is to vindicate. To vindicate. So you could read this, she's asking for vindication from her enemies. From those who are oppressing her, she's going to the judge saying, I need you to protect me from my oppressors. I, I am demanding vindication. What does that mean? Well, keep in mind what he's adjudicating here, right? The point here is she's, con- she's confident of her own innocence before God's law. Remember, that's what he's adjudicating? He's adjudicating God's law so her accusers would be one who would come to, him, come to her saying, you're violating God's law. It would be like the Pharisees chasing after Christ on the Sabbath, complaining about how the disciples were taking the heads of grain off the field. It's that sense of persecution. Someone who would come before her and say, you are failing in re- with respect to your oblig- obligations under the law. She goes to the judge and she says, vindicate me. Turn to my oppressors and tell them that no, I am not violating God's law. I am doing what God expects of me. Vindicate me before my accusers. Show that she is righteous and that her opponents are in fact the unrighteous ones, the guilty ones. And that is something that a judge should certainly do if they were doing their job. And we're told that the judge is unwilling to give protection to her, at least at first. But due to the woman's persistence, the judge relents. And he eventually gives her what she wants. Now it's interesting as we break this down though, to understand what's really going on here. In Greek, the phrase that's translated wear me out is hypopiazi. Hypopiazi in the Greek, which is actually an idiom. You remember what an idiom is? Idiomatic language. I often use the example of get off my back. You and I use that phrase. We know instinctively what that means. We've learned it from hearing it used. Get off my back means leave me alone, right? Stop bothering me. If I were to take that in its... English form, get off my back, and translate it literally into Japanese using a transliteration, get off my back in Japanese. And I put that before a Japanese person who's unfamiliar with our idiom. They'd say, well, why do you have somebody on your back? You'd have to, what would, you, what would be the right way to translate that to a Japanese audience? Leave me alone. The words aren't the same, but the meaning is the proper meaning. That's what idioms do in language sometimes. They force you to use different words in order to keep the meaning correct. This is idiomatic in the Greek. The actual literal way you would translate the Greek that's being used here is strike under the eye. Strike under the eye. This woman, he says in the, in the phrase, I have to give her what she wants 
lest she wear me out, or the more literal way to say it would be, lest she give me a black eye. Lest she give me a black eye. In other words, this man's saying, I need to do what I have to do to protect this woman, otherwise she might give me a black eye. She might ruin my reputation. I might get a black eye in the sense of I might get embarrassed for not having done my job for this woman's sake. Because remember, she's not asking him to go contrary to the law. It's not as though she wore him down in the way our children wear us down. Daddy, can I do this? Can I stay up late at night? No, your bedtime's this. Please, please, please. No, your bedtime's this. Please, please, please. Okay, fine, stay up. What they got out of that persistence was the wrong thing, not the right thing. If you're not careful, you read that into the text here, that somehow what she did was she wore the judge down until he finally did what she wanted him to do rather than what he wanted to do. No, it's the other way around. She eventually made an appeal so strong and persistent that he said, it's embarrassing to my reputation that I have failed to act for this woman's benefit as I should have all along. It's becoming, it's becoming too obvious to people that I haven't done what I'm supposed to do. And I have to act just to preserve my reputation at this point. I need to do the right thing. So what motivates the unrighteous judge to finally do his job is his own concern for his reputation, as stained as it may be, as it is. So then Jesus helps us now to understand how to make an application here. And remember, I said this is a contrast, not a comparison. So he makes a contrast here between that man and God. It's not a comparison, so we're not suggesting that God is like an unrighteous judge and has to be worn down in that way in order to come through on what he had on what the right thing is or anything of that nature. It's a contrast. He's not like that, is the point. He's unlike that. We're saying he's not like an unrighteous judge. Now, there's a small comparison going on here in the midst of this overall contrast. And, that, and, and, and this is the comparison you could make. We are like the widow in that we have very little power and practically no standing in this world, particularly in relationship to God. We have no power in this world in comparison to God. In fact, really just in comparison to anyone, we have virtually no power in this world. Really, if you wanted to affect change on the globe as a whole right now, how much of us, how much of what we wanted to do could actually affect global change? We'd like to think we can, but in reality, how much of us could really change the world? Barring God's grace to let us do it, it's not going to happen, right? So, frankly, we have no power of any notable amount, particularly in comparison to God. And likewise, God is similar to the judge only in that he is infinitely more powerful in comparison to us. He has all the power, we have none. So in that sense, you can draw a comparison, but that's the extent of the comparison. From there on, you're looking at a contrast. We know that God is a truly righteous judge. So Christ's point in the parable is, knowing that about God, how much more should we expect him to do what's right in light of our appeals, considering what an unrighteous judge was willing to do in light of the widow's appeals? How much more should we expect him to act than we saw this man act in this parable? If an unrighteous man is willing to do what's right on the basis of protecting his reputation, shouldn't we expect God to do what's right for the sake of his name and his reputation in this world? All the more so is the conclusion. So what do we learn from the parable? The truth stands apart. It's obvious. It's understandable. But now what do you do with it? What's the application to the Christian? It's not enough, in my opinion, as I looked at these verses, it's not enough to simply say that the parable teaches us that God answers our prayers for protection and justice. That's not the fundamental point here. I mean, it's true enough, but 
But we didn't need this parable to teach us that. I mean, if that was really the point of the parable, pray to God and He'll answer your prayers. Okay. You know, it's a lesson, but it's not a particularly powerful one in light of all the scriptures already taught these men. In fact, I would argue that His twelve disciples brought up in a Jewish tradition, schooled into the Old Testament, uh, knowing what they knew about God through their teaching as a child in the Jewish faith. It's not a particularly great revelation for Christ to do all this teaching just to tell them that you can expect God to answer your prayer to some extent. That's not a very challenging teaching. The disciples are going to experience a lifetime of waiting. A lifetime of waiting. They're going to go not only through their own lifetime, but that waiting is going to continue long after they are gone from this earth. The waiting for the second coming. The waiting for their own resurrection to a moment when they can reign on earth with Christ. They're still waiting. They're alive, absolutely. They are with Christ as we all would be on the day of our death. But they're waiting. Where they exist right now is not where they want to be eventually, nor are you and I. I think sometimes as we talk about what happens after we die with our kids or even amongst ourselves, we trivialize what Scripture gives us in rich detail. The thought that when I die, I go to heaven is not scripturally correct. When I die, I go to Christ's presence, which right now is in the throne room, yes. But he doesn't stay there. Upon Christ's second coming, we know out of Revelation 19, he brings the saints with, them, with him. That means you and I, if we're, whether we've died or whether we've been raptured, in either case, we're there with him in that moment. And we reign with him on a physical earth, this earth, for a thousand years. Heaven is this earth, with real work, with real life. You look at what Isaiah has to say about the nature of the times in this world. In chapter 11, for example, you hear about the fact that we will be growing things and eating the produce of what we grow and living in homes and building and seeing the work of our hands lasting, not perishing and not wearing out like it does now. We will live in peace. We will see Christ ruling from a place in Jerusalem over the whole world. It is a functioning, living society with government, with commerce, with business, with real life going on, you and I there in a perfect, sinless form. And for a thousand years, that's the joy we get to experience, along with a world of other people, to include some unbelievers, people who are living in sin still. We know that exists because at the end of that thousand years, we know that the enemy is let loose once again to deceive the nations. And in that last final attempt to conquer Christ, he assembles an army of countless millions of people willing to follow him. In this time we're talking about, only to see their final destruction in that moment. So there is still a very real, rich life to be led here on earth after Christ returns. It's not on the clouds with harps. Hallelujah for me. I don't know about you. And then that ushers in the the new heaven and new earth, which is yet again another new experience which goes on uh, to eternity as far as we know from Scripture. My point here is that these men have to live through a lifetime on earth of persecution and difficulty in trying to do as Christ has given them uh, a mission to do. And God, he said, is going to bring justice and you should not have any doubt about that, and you should not lose any heart over it, and you cannot use the excuse that it didn't come in your lifetime as a reason to have a loss of of, of stamina or a loss of heart in the mission he's given you. That you have to be prepared to work your entire life to the point of the grave, never seeing the ultimate fruit of your prayers for justice. Never actually seeing the moment when justice comes in your lifetime, just trusting and knowing that it will come, and you will be there to see it one day. And that's the one feature of this parable that I think is easy to overlook. The woman got what she had reason to expect, but it took a long time. It took a lot of time and effort on her part before she finally got it. She had to wait a long time for that justice, and in the meantime, she suffered persecution. Even as she waited, persecution continued. 
And in the end, her, per- her persistence was met with satisfaction, yes. And here's where the parable offers us one more opportunity for comparison, I think, rather than contrast. Just like in the woman's situation, we can expect that our persistence and our desire for justice will ultimately result in satisfaction. We will see those who have persecuted us, who oppose Christ and oppose the message of the gospel, receiving justice. That will happen. But the question is, are you prepared to wait your entire lifetime and even longer for that to happen? That should be something you consider before you start the journey. It's comparable to Christ's statement that says that a man who would build a tower and not have enough to finish it will be ridiculed. If you can't consider your mission in this life of, of working toward the ministry God has given you to, consider, to be something that you will persist in until death and not see any of the prayers for justice answered, can you live with that? Can you accept that that is in fact perhaps how God has planned to carry out your time on this earth? And knowing that, you can't turn around to him later and say, well, I gave up because it was just so disappointing I couldn't go on any longer. He says, you don't get the option to come to that conclusion on the basis of what you experience in your life. One of the ways you can tell, I think, whether spiritual maturity is truly upon an individual or not is in their view of prayer. As a child, you tend to ask for things and your happiness is dependent on whether you get it or not. And your patience is pretty short. So that if the immediate gratification isn't there, the response, the negative response follows pretty quickly thereafter. So life is about desires and, and, and gratification. Desires and gratification. And your happiness is really a function of that. Adulthood should bring with it a maturity that says, I don't base my happiness, strictly speaking, on whether I get what I want. And number two, I'm willing to wait a long time if it's worth it. Spiritual maturity is just the same. If your prayers and your personal spiritual happiness are dependent on whether or not you're getting what you want right away from God, if, if your recipe for what you want isn't what He gives you, you're unhappy with Him, you, you get childish in your response to that fact, you, you start to look at it as if He's let you down, you look at it as if your faith isn't worth it anymore, you, you try to punish God by not coming to church or paying your tithe. I mean, if that's the response you have to how God chooses to address your prayer life, then you're living a childish existence spiritually in the same way that we see our children doing in their physical, real life. But on the other hand, if your view of prayer is, I ask, trusting God to give me what's best, hoping that He will eventually work through my prayers to mold my nature into His, so that I'll be asking more and more for what He wants rather than what I want, and then, regardless of my circumstances, I give thanks. I am content in all that happens to me. I do not place my love and appreciation for God as conditional, based on what He brings me in my life. Then you've reached spiritual maturity, and then He can use you then he can do with you or me what he did with Paul, which is put you through the ringer knowing that it won't affect the message or your desire to go forward in it. And by your weakness, he's made strong, and by your testimony in the midst of persecution, his grace is that much more evident. The truth is that much more powerful to people who try to figure out why you're willing to go through what you go through. Because, you know what, if our reaction to the world is the same way, or our reaction to God is the same way the world reacts to their circumstances, we love God when things are good, we hate God when things are bad, we do what He wants when He gives us what we like, we don't do what He wants when He doesn't give us what He likes, you know what the world says? You're just like us. Your message isn't any different. You live like we do. The Christian message is different, and our lives should reflect that. Being willing to pray and maintain trust in God to act, even if it doesn't happen in your lifetime or in mine, is a true, a true measure of faith. The true measure of faith. Remember, the disciples were all martyrs. 
They never saw God act in their day to remove persecution. How many of them prayed, perhaps, to see persecution removed in their life? How many of them may have prayed to see God rescue them, rescue them from their circumstances? Whether he did it once or twice is irrelevant. Ultimately, he didn't. Ultimately, they died. Martyrs. Maybe all but John. Now, all of this I'm said does not preclude the possibility that God will take some kind of intermediate action, some kind of temporary stay for you, that in the midst of persecution or in the midst of some kind of trial, uh, the classic example we all think of that we were reminded, I guess, of tonight in the, in the midst of our prayer is the missionary who's undergoing trials in his work in the field. It is not beyond God to remove that persecution or that trial uh, as a result of prayer on an ongoing basis, time and time again. He's proven himself to do that, often and, and always. But ultimate justice can only come upon Christ's return. The only kind of justice that has ultimate eternal meaning is the justice that God will pour out on the earth upon Christ's return. And that justice may or may not come for us in our lifetime. No matter how many intermediate times it comes, or in in smaller ways God may pour out His grace, ultimate justice will always await until that moment. And just in the case of the, as is the case here in the disciples, they were tempted to measure their own success by what they saw with their eyes. And I think Jesus is trying to teach them here in this sobering principle that they cannot do that. Look what He says in verse 8. Will there be faith on the earth when Christ returns? When I come back, am I going to find a world embracing me? When that end of the world day comes, is He going to return to a world full of people? Embracing Him, calling upon His name, honoring Him, clapping as they see Him come down from the clouds. Is that what He expects to find on the day of His return? It's a rhetorical question because the answer is obvious by what He's just taught, both here and in chapter 17. No. He's not going to find a world who has waited their lifetime for Him. He will find believers. We know that. But they will be in the minority by far. As a world entity overall, he will not find a world ready to receive him. And therefore, he says, don't lose heart. Don't cease praying. Don't let your eyes and ears deceive you. Don't begin to think that because your own efforts to carry the gospel forward haven't been met with revival at every corner, that you should therefore doubt the mission. Like I said earlier, you can't use that as an excuse. The hopelessness of the earth is your reason to persevere. The fact that the world rejects Christ is your reason to press forward in bringing the news of God's love and of the gospel. The very fact that there are not people receiving him is our reason to go into the mouth of the lion, so to speak. Some might ask, why persist in prayer for God's justice when the day of its arrival is already determined and set? Did some of that thinking creep into your mind as I was talking? Well, wait a minute, Steve. If this day of ultimate justice is foredetermined and it's set and it's going to happen when God dictates... Why would I continue to pray in the meantime for that day if I cannot influence the moment it occurs? That's like a child being or a child telling his parent, Mom, Dad, why do I have to ask you if I can do this if every time I ask you just say no? Because your only alternative to doing that is to do it on your own, and that's called disobedience. Remember, prayer is a privilege God grants his children. And when he exercises, when we exercise that privilege, we are benefiting from the opportunity to spend time in His presence regardless of our circumstances and regardless of His answer. And we may never realize the benefits of being in that moment until we are glorified and all things are made known to us. We may never realize what was going on because of our willingness to pray. But secondly, our continued faithful prayers for Jesus' return, which is what He's commanding us here to do for that justice moment, will form a faithful witness to the world. 
who knows how many people might be positively influenced by our prayerful expectation of Jesus' second coming. By your faithful prayers for a return of Christ to a world who does not believe he existed, much less will return, could be a faithful witness God could use mightily, so that even though in the praying itself you're not changing what God has in mind, not more than any other prayer would, you're still accomplishing his will and doing a work that he has appointed us to do. Sometimes the needs God has for our behavior, our, be, our, our obedience, goes well beyond what we can understand in the moment. That's why obedience is not to be measured by our eyes and our ears, but by our heart. Then he backs up this parable with a second one, and we'll go through this one a little more quickly, but it's another contrast that basically teaches on a common point. Look at verse 9. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves and that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, just like the first parable tonight, Jesus begins by explaining the purpose, or Luke rather, begins by explaining the purpose of this parable. And it illustrates the two places that people put their trust. That's the basic point here. There's billions of people in the world. There's maybe millions of things they believe in. But in reality, there's only two places people put their trust. These two men went up to the temple, we're told, in Jerusalem to pray. And the Pharisee here was, uh, on the one hand, the man of righteousness, and the sinner, the man, the tax collector. And just like with the earlier parable, we're struck with this immediate contrast again. In the earlier example, it was power that was being contrasted, a lot to a little. Here it's righteousness, but in a very specific sense. Outward righteousness, the public perception of righteousness, of what the world would see if they looked at these two men. So the world sees, on the one hand, a righteous individual in the form of this Pharisee. In fact, Pharisees were literally the symbol of righteousness in Jewish culture. Uh, And to draw a comparison to kind of help you understand what I mean by that, a Pharisee in Christ's day would have been viewed to the world in the Jewish culture, much like you and I or others, let's say, might have seen Mother Teresa in her day. Regardless of whether Mother Teresa's heart was true before God or not, I would never know. But the fact is, her life, the way she lived it and all that was said about her, would have been seen as the epitome of righteousness to the world, of sacrificial living and of helping the poor and so on and so forth. It's in that sense that the Pharisee carried that same image before most of the people in the Jewish culture. This perfect symbol of righteousness. And then on the other hand, we have this tax collector who easily, easily had the lowest reputation within Jewish society. I mean, yeah, he wasn't a Gentile. I guess that would be about the only thing that could have made him worse. But within Jewish culture, there's no one lower on the social ladder. The widow would have been the lowest in terms of power and authority, but the tax collector, in in terms of righteousness or in the world's view of his reputation, he would have been the worst in society. Because here you're talking about a Jew who not only has repudiated the law and lives outside it, but now he's repudiated his own Jewish people by aligning himself with the oppressor, with the Romans. He's a traitor as well as being an unrighteous man. And so that made him doubly bad to the society. Everyone hated tax collectors except other tax collectors. So this parable plays effectively on these two extremes because in the end it reverses the roles of honor. 
which is a very striking thing for someone in that day. Consider the words and the actions of the Pharisee, for example. You have him standing close in within the temple. Now, I wouldn't make too much of the fact that he stands, because that's how Jews pray. You know the wailing wall? They stand and they pray. They don't typically go down on their knees. So the fact that he's standing alone doesn't tell us anything. It's more the fact that he went into the temple, that he's close in to the mercy seat. He presumably went as close as he could without going into the Holy of Holies. Or as a non-priest, maybe he was standing outside the holy place. But he went as close as he could in the temple in order to do his praying. Uh, Symbolically, he's getting as close to God as he can. He has no concerns over approaching God in his temple. And then when you see him praying... I love this. Jesus pointedly says he prays to himself. He prays to himself. It's not the same thing as saying he prays silently. You know how you do that with kids? Pray this to yourself. Say this, you know, say this to yourself. Read to yourself. What we're really saying is read silently. Pray silently. The language here is not saying pray silently. The language in the Greek very specifically is saying, uh, in fact, the word here for himself literally means one's conscience. So he's making an appeal to his own conscience. That's what's being done here. So the man makes this appeal to his own conscience rather than making an appeal to God himself. And then look at the content of what he says. He gives thanks to God in his words, but really when you look at the overall purpose and the content of the prayer, he really praises himself. Because look what he says. In the words that that I read there, he says, I do this. I do this. It's a praise of self. I want to make a comparison for you here. It would be like me hosting a dinner in my house to honor my parents. So I have this big table with my parents at the head of the table and all these friends and relatives around this table. And I stand up to give a speech to honor my parents, presumably, and I declare how thankful I am for my parents giving me so much intelligence and good looks and such a humble personality, right? Now, all that's true, but that's really not the point here. Right? I mean, it would be like me saying, oh, you know, my parents are so wonderful. Look at how wonderful a person I am. You know, as if that proves the point. And that's what he's saying to God. He's saying, I'm so thankful that I'm perfect. Effectively. That's what he's thinking. That's what his words mean. So who's receiving praise in this moment? Self-evidently, he is. He's the only one in the room getting praise. There's something more insidious here about this prayer that he makes, this supposed prayer. Because in the prayer, he makes a comparison of himself to others. There's a comparison he makes here between himself and this other person who self-evidently is worth less to God, is, is not worthy of God's favor. And he mentions the various, sinner, various kinds of sinners of the, of the day of the Pharisee. These are sort of the characteristic types of sinners in Jesus' uh, day and in that, in that place. People that to the society would certainly have experienced God's judgment were it to come. Because they had not... It, it, And here's the thinking, because they haven't escaped the sin of their lives, like I've escaped the sin of my life, God looks down on them while he looks with me with favor. That's the comparison he makes. Uh, And by the way, in that culture, Pharisees led this incredibly austere and scrupulous lifestyle. Outwardly, to be sure. But they would fast twice a week, which he mentions here, when typically in that culture people fast once a week. So it was, it was intentional. Whatever you do, I'm going to do twice of it. They would tithe, as you know from other places in the Gospel, on their mint and on their, their herbs in the garden. They were so scrupulous. They tithed on anything they could possibly find to tithe, the smallest thing. And it was in these actions that they felt justified before God. But look at the judgmental nature of his prayer. The inevitable consequence of those who would desire to stand before God on the basis of their own self-made righteousness is that they are forever making comparisons between themselves and others. 
It is inherently the case that when you think you're righteous before God because of your own behavior, you must by nature make comparisons in order to come to any sense of peace before God. And the comparisons are always designed in such a way that you win. As long as there's someone worse than me in the world, I'm good before God. And the comparisons are always for the purpose of finding fault with others so that we might see ourselves as being better by comparison. And in my experience, one is always a sign of the other. Which I mean, by that I mean this. A person who is self-righteous and relies on their own goodness before God to earn God's favor, the one who, who lives by works, for what, in whatever context you want to pick, whatever religious view you want to pick, however you want to imagine it, there are many, many, many you know, billions of people who live essentially by an, uh, a concept of works, an economy of works. I'm doing good things, therefore God must show me favor when it comes to my entry into heaven. When you find someone like that, they will naturally adopt a judgmental attitude about others, though they often can't imagine themselves to have such an attitude. But it's inherently necessary. I have to know what is good and bad in order to judge whether I'm doing the right thing for God, and so consequently I can't help but make comparisons and see the rest of the world around me as people who aren't doing the good things. They're bad people, therefore. Judgmental nature is an inherent quality of someone who, works, who lives by works. But the reverse is also true, in my experience. Someone who exhibits a judgmental attitude toward others is resting, if even for a moment, in their own righteousness as insurance before God. And that's true for Christians too. A person who has placed their trust in Christ for their salvation and who understands that it's grace and not works that saves them, that person can still fall back into a pattern of judging others because somewhere in their heart they've begun to rest on their own righteousness before God. I'm not saying their salvation's at issue. I'm not saying that they're undoing salvation. I'm talking about a sin issue in their life. I'm talking about someone who says, I go to church regularly, I read the Bible, I'm a good Bible student, I tithe, I do all the things I'm supposed to do, and you start to fall back into this attitude that I'm just not, God just likes me. I've met his test of likability. I know I'm saved by grace, but he really likes me now. And you over here, you're just not living the life that a good Christian should live. And you know, God's not going to be happy with you. And the judgmental nature starts to creep in. And we begin to make comparisons within the Christian realm. And within that realm, we start to draw comparisons that make ourselves feel better. Not that we go to the next step of saying we're saved because we've done good works, but just on the basis that we begin to feel secure before God because I can find somebody else in the Christian walk who's not as good a Christian as I am. And I gain some personal satisfaction with that. It makes me feel better to find Christians who are not as good as I am. I would never think to say that. I never imagined that I thought that way. But deep down inside, it makes me feel a little better to know there are Christians who don't do as many good things as I do. That I can find people who don't study as much as I do. I feel you know, pretty good about that. It's a natural human reaction and it leads to judgmental attitudes that don't love, but rather criticize. That don't build up, but rather tear down. It's a natural consequence of the human flesh still in us. So what's the solution to that problem? Hopefully the solution that you and I know is obvious. The, the one who's an unbeliever, for that person it is to repent of their sin, to relinquish any claim to goodness before God on the basis of works, and to recognize that apart from grace, we have no value before God. And by our acceptance of His grace, by faith in the work of His Son, we might see value before Him, not on the basis of our own good work, but on the basis of what Christ did in our behalf. That's the ultimate solution, obviously, for the unbeliever who lives like this Pharisee does. But the more pertinent 
question, the one I think that's a little more difficult to answer is, what solution, what's the solution for you and I today? If we were to find ourselves falling into that pattern I described. You know what? The answer is exactly the same. In many ways, the answer to our problem is exactly the same as it was for that Pharisee. It's found in the attitude of that other man in the temple. He is the epitome of a sinner. But the thing is, he's just like you and I. In all the respects of his life, in other words, when seen from God's perspective, our sin is no less than his from God's perspective. Our unworthiness is no less than his from God's perspective. We have every reason to feel just like this man did essentially every day of our life in that we recognize apart from Christ we have no, no righteousness before God. All the things we do that are churchy, when taken apart from grace, condemn us to hell because they're done with a self-serving desire. But attached to grace and faith in Christ, they become the benefits that lead to reward in the eternal kingdom. They become the basis of God showering us with crowns of one kind or another. But without faith, it is impossible to please God, as Hebrews teaches us, right? This man, this Pharisee, he's someone who can't, or this tax collector, he's someone who cannot escape the sin. I love that about this guy. You know, there are a lot of ways you and I can sin that are hidden from other people, right? But there are other kinds of sin that we can't hide. This man's lifestyle was that kind of sin. As a tax collector, he couldn't pretend one moment to the next that he wasn't a sinner. He was marked. He had a scarlet letter on him, if you will. Everywhere he went, he was treated for the sinner that he was. So he couldn't pretend. He couldn't deceive himself that he was good before God. He had to live every day with the fact that people knew he was a sinner and he couldn't hide it. That fact stripped him of any pretense, I believe. He couldn't walk around as the Pharisee did, pretending to be without sin. And his very profession testified against him. And when he's ready to come before God and to seek forgiveness, his behavior and his words reflect a heart that recognized his unworthiness before God. So you and I as a Christian don't mope every day assuming we're under judgment. We know better than that. But on the other hand, it doesn't hurt if we have a constant reminder of the fact that apart from grace, we are unworthy before God. We have no basis to stand in judgment over anyone else and say that because of what we do, say, or think, we have moved ourselves to some higher plane in God's mind, in God's eyes. The only plane we sit on is the one that was established by Christ. And we all sit at the same level in God's eyes with respect to that plane. What we earn in the form of obedience is simply opportunity to serve in the next kingdom. It does not raise our standard in God's eyes. Jesus said this man is justified in God's sight. Clearly, he wasn't justified because of his works, because he had no good work. He was justified on the basis of repentance and faith. And then he sums it up this way, which is maybe the way we should leave it tonight. He said, those who are willing to recognize and acknowledge their own unworthiness before him are going to be exalted by God. But for those who don't recognize that they are unworthy, he says, those who try to exalt themselves before God, they're going to be humbled in the eternal sense. We're talking here about judgment. The eternal disposition of these people. The world's not going to receive him. And likewise, the world's largely not going to receive us. And in light of that, knowing that the world's not going to receive him, we should expect faith will not be present upon his return. But, and here's the kicker, faith is the only way you can be justified. The world is busy devising all manner of ways to reach God. Faith is but the only way you can please God. And the fact that the message we're going to bring is not going to convert the whole world does not give us an option to go with plan B. Faith is the only way God has proclaimed for men to come to know him and to be in his family. 
Faith will not resonate across the world. You cannot substitute some other method to draw men. Now, I want to make that point as we close tonight, because in the verses we're going to pick up in in two weeks, he goes deeper into a discussion of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And this is important, because I think you see, even in the days we live today, a subtle but noticeable shift within the church corporately, the overall universal church, a shift toward doing the very thing he says you can't do. There is a shift, as I see it, in the church to say, we need to convert more people, and the traditional methods don't do it so well. What other methods can we find in the world, from the business world, from the marketing world, from the advertising world, from the psychology world, and co-opt that thinking, bring it into the church, dress it up, and sell it, and let's see if that doesn't pack them in. And what he's saying here is that if your goals don't understand the promise Christ made about the nature of the end times and you try to subvert that by changing the process in any way, you miss the point of what God does in his people. He changes hearts. You don't. And he will do it through faith. And the fact that it doesn't catch everyone is part of the plan. Don't let that disappoint you so much that you actually try to override God's eternal plan and create the appearance of faith, though not the reality of it, and think you're doing the right thing. That's an important message for the church today because church leadership can't hear that enough, in my opinion. What we'll see in the verses we follow with at the end of this chapter is Christ making clearer and clearer the nature of how men will be drawn to him and who's responsible for making that happen. Your word tonight, Father, has, as always, been a light upon our feet. And, Father, it is in our hearts the work of salvation, the work of sanctification. Father, it is the way by which we can be drawn to know and be like you. Father, I pray that the conviction of the Holy Spirit may have spoken to those of us in this room and those who may hear this message would not be lost on us for, for a lack of a heart to obey. Let us go out from your Father, with a heart to do as you've commanded us to do, to, to recognize our unworthiness before you, to know, Father, that apart from grace we have no hope, and then, Father, in the same love that you showed us, I hope we would take the message, preach to others how the salvation that came to us is available as well to them and that that salvation, Father, based on faith, is the one hope for the world. The faith, Father, that will lead them to an eternity with you. The hope that is in the hearts of all men, though so few, Father, find it in truth. I pray, Lord, that we might be used mightily in that way. But may we also, Father, never lose heart May we never find excuses not to pray, not to trust, Father, not to wait patiently. May persecutions, Father, um, not come our way. May trials, Father, be spared if it is your will. But, Father, regardless of what may come our way, may we continue unabated in the mission you've given us here on earth, Father, to bring the news of the gospel to so many and to disciple those who receive it. I pray, Father, we'd be worthy of that calling. And as the weeks go, Father, in the two weeks that... We'll come here soon. I pray we would uh, be a good witness, salt and light for this uh, message that you've given us. And then if it be your will, may we return in two weeks to continue this study. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.